This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Osea. Treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Their Golden Glow Body Set includes three bestsellers for smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow & Go Facial Set provides spa-level results at home. Both sets come in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM. Thanks for listening to Code Switch. Check out the NPR One app for your phone. You can listen to news and stories from your local station and find new shows and stories to make your commute less awful. It's all there and ready when you are on NPR One. Find it on your app store, N-P-R-O-N-E. What's good, y'all? This is Code Switch. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Maraji. We're back and we have to start with a warning. A trigger warning. Dun, dun, if con- <laughs> Sorry, <man. laughs> Thank you, Gene. If conversations about trigger warnings make you crazy or roll your eyes like they do in my case, mm-hmm. get ready. And, you know, one of the things that makes us so crazy is that trigger warnings get tossed into this big pot with all these other ideas like political correctness and safe spaces. They all get conflated. So we're going to get specific. Yes. So with all the debate on campuses about what students do and don't need and what professors can and can't say, we wanted to really understand what's actually going on. So in this episode, the view from the front of the classroom. Mm-hmm. Do college professors need to give trigger warnings? What for? What's the debate here, really? And when a school like the University of Chicago sends a letter to students saying, our commitment to academic freedom means we do not support so-called trigger warnings, and that's the real quote, it's like, is this really such a big deal? Mm-hmm. And is it the so-called trigger warning, I'm doing the air quote thing that I always do. Yes, you love to do that. <laughs> um, is that really any different from the kind of content warning you might see before a movie or when you buy a video game? And so, since this is Code Switch, we wanted specifically to talk about trigger warnings related to racial content, like racist imagery. Race and violence in America are inextricable. And when professors teach an unsanitized version of American history, it's disturbing. But is it triggering? And when we're talking about race and identity and how we communicate about who we are, that gets even messier. In a few minutes, we're going to get into these questions with two professors who deal with them every day. But before we hear that conversation, we need to lay a foundation because things like trigger warnings can be so subjective. Right. So our friends at the NPR Ed team recently published the results of a big survey about trigger warnings. And they asked about 800 professors about the topic. And I got the basics from correspondent Anya Kamenitz. Okay, let's do this. Anya, thanks for coming to Code Switch. Thanks for having me, Gene. All right, so right here at the top, can we just define our terms really quickly? Um, What is a trigger warning? So the term is borrowed from psychology and particularly from uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. So when people have been in experiences like combat or sexual assault are two of the most common examples, uh, they can have what are called triggers. And this is something that's a clinical issue. You know, if you've ever been around, somebody's been in war. Something seemingly benign, a sound or, uh, you know, even a collection of words can bring on something that feels as intense and heavy as a panic attack. Mm -hmm. But trigger warnings 
have kind of morphed from that and migrated, uh, particularly online and particularly in the blogosphere, I would say they're used a lot uh, to label content that people might find disturbing um, so that, you know, you're not going to set off somebody's internal, you know, bad spiral of feelings. So is what a psychologist um, or clinician, what they might call a trigger different from what a professor might think it is or the way it's used on campuses? Oh, I think so. I mean, first of all, we have to establish that the treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder is not to avoid triggers, mm-hmm. right? The treatment for PTSD uh, is therapy and talking about it and sometimes exposure therapy, which actually means deliberately in a safe way, you know, coming to terms with your environment such sure. that you're right, you're not like set off in a crazy way by a car backfiring. And so it is really different, I think, in the way that people are talking about it in in a classroom. And certainly classrooms, not exactly a therapeutic environment, and nor is it exactly, you know, uh, the same as when people are just reading or browsing the Internet. Mm -hmm. So the NPR Ed team, you guys did this big survey of 800 professors from around the country at colleges and universities um, and asked them how they used or didn't use trigger warnings. And I'm just really curious, like, what you guys found. Basically, we wanted to know what was going on at the colleges that most students attended. So we weighted our survey towards uh, public universities and community colleges. And most professors, almost 90 percent, had heard of trigger warnings. About half of them said that they themselves had used something like a trigger warning in Mm. their own classrooms. And how were they using them? Like, did they describe what that looked like? Yeah, basically, it could be something, a note in the syllabus. It could be something that they said at the beginning of the semester mm-hmm. and kind of a heads up. These are the types of you know content that we cover. And then it could be specific to a certain class. Like uh, I had a professor tell me in an interview that she said, you know, I'm going to be showing this video at the beginning of class. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's an anthropological ritual. It's female genital mutilation. Mm-hmm. If you do not want to see this, come to class late. Right. Right. So, yeah, I saw one of the responses and um, I just want to read it to you really quickly. Mm-hmm. Quote, I teach African-American history from slavery to the present. At the beginning of the semester, I tell my students that what we will be studying is what I call hard history. Hard to research, uncover and recover, hard to teach, hard to talk about. That's all the warning they get. This is American history, their collective history, and it's bruising. And there's no getting around this. And there was another response from someone who's on the other side. I've never had a student request them and never had an administration recommend or suggest them. I suspect that they are largely unnecessary. Is that sort of characteristic of the responses you guys got? It's very characteristic. And I would point out that, you know, I think for professors, academic freedom is a really huge issue for them. Mm -hmm. And most two thirds of the professors that used trigger warnings said it was my decision. The the material warranted it. I thought the material warranted it. Uh, at the same time, very, very few, like less than 2% said that their administration had, you know, tried to impose any policy on trigger warnings. And only 3.5% said that students had requested it. Hmm. So I'm curious, like, how many of these professors who responded to you said that they gave warnings for racial material, explicitly racial material, as opposed to something like uh, sexual violence in literature or something? So, you know, we allowed people to give more than one response. And Mm -hmm. the most top two common ones were sexual or violent material, uh, like over half. And then um, racial material was kind of the third biggest category. About 28 percent said, you know, because of racial uh, references or images I had given this morning. And obviously there's examples of both. I mean, the classic example came up a couple of times was uh, an image of a lynching, right? That's violent and racial. Right. Is there research on whether... 
racially charged imagery or language or violence can trigger people in the same way that like a conversation around uh, rape in a novel might trigger someone who's a sexual assault survivor. You know, it's so interesting, Jean, uh, the understanding of post-traumatic stress disorder used to be very much tied to the idea of one traumatic experience, Mm -hmm. one personal experience. And so the only way you could have racial PTSD would be if you'd been the victim of a hate crime, let's say. Right. But in the most recent, um, you know, diagnostic and statistical manual, the Bible for psychologists, they've altered that definition a little bit to say if you're in a hostile environment in an ongoing way, that that could potentially be the same kind of cumulative trauma over time that could lead to uh, a diagnosis of PTSD. And that might be someone growing up in an abusive family or mm. it might be just someone growing up in a violent neighborhood, Right. Um, And so those experiences might accumulate over time of just being, you know, dealing with racism on a day-to-day basis such that something that might seem benign to other people or a so-called microaggression could actually trigger you just as, you know, someone who'd been physically beaten or abused. Okay, so that's Anya Kamenitz breaking it down for us. And so what she was saying there reminded me of a story that my friend Tiffany told me not long ago about being pulled over by a police officer. She was saying that, you know, because of everything that was happening in the news, when that happened to her, you know, her palms are sweating, her heart was racing. Yeah, so maybe there is something to the idea that professors should use trigger warnings if they're talking about police violence, for example. Yeah, maybe. And look, there are so many ways to approach a trigger warning. We're going to dig into some of the variations with two professors in a minute. One tells us that trigger warnings don't have to be super serious. He says, imagine his class. On this particular day, it's almost all white students with a handful of black students who always sit together and the lectures about slavery. And I told the class, I was like, look, we're going to talk about this. And I don't want everybody else in the class looking over here to these three black folks <laughs> over here. But the answer is just don't do it. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Blue Apron. Blue Apron partners with sustainable farms, fisheries, and ranchers to bring you all the ingredients you need to create incredible home-cooked meals. Ingredients come paired with an easy-to-follow recipe card delivered to your door weekly in a refrigerated box. Rediscover how fun cooking can be while enjoying specialty ingredients and exploring new flavors and cuisines. Get your first three Blue Apron meals free plus free shipping by visiting blueapron.com slash codeswitch. Hey, Sam Sanders here from the NPR Politics Podcast. Mark your calendar. Monday, September 26th is the very first presidential debate. And the next morning, we are inviting you to skip the cable news hangover and get caught up with us. We'll have new podcast episodes the morning after every single debate. So you'll know what happened and what it means by the time you get to work or class or finish walking the dog. Whatever your morning routine, make us a part of it. The NPR Politics Podcast. Subscribe or listen on the NPR One app. All right, back to the show. It's Code Switch. We're back with two professors who took the NPR Ed Team survey on trigger warnings. Hassan Jeffries is a professor of history at the Ohio State University. <laughs> and Joanna Hunter is a professor of sociology at Radford University. Welcome to you both. Thanks very much. Thank you for having us. So we know there's a bunch of ways professors use trigger warnings. Um, Some put them in a syllabus, and that's all you get for the entire semester. Others use them at the beginning of a lecture because they know something disturbing is going to come up in that lecture. So, you know, they might give a trigger warning a few times over the course of a semester. Can you both give us an example of how you've used trigger warnings around issues of race? Hassan, we'll start with you. So when I use uh, what would be 
classified as a trigger warning. Um, I sort of give it at the beginning of the semester. Okay. And it's re- and it's really more a warning of, like, this is American history. And American history is not pretty, and it's ugly, and it's violent, and it's, you know. And so it's my trigger warning is more so, look, we're going to deal with reality and reality the way it is, um, especially as it, when it comes to race. You know, like, this is it's a hard topic to talk about, and it, it makes people uncomfortable, uh, mm-hmm. but that's what we're here for. Joanna? Yeah, I think actually I have a very similar approach. I teach um, sociology courses, and I always have a kind of spiel at the beginning of the semester um, where I say, you know, we talk about all the things in this class that your mama told you not to talk about. Like, we, you know, we talk about religion, we talk about sexuality and race, and I kind of, you know, I wrap it all up in together. And then sometimes I uh, tell an, an anecdote, and this is a true story that happened to me the first time I ever taught a college course. Um, I was a fresh grad student. I was teaching a class on social problems. And I'm a um, very blonde and blue-eyed white girl, basically. (laughs) And it was a large class, about 70 students. And I had, there were obviously other students of color in the class, but I had four African-American women who always sat in the front row, were always engaged in the class. You know, we had a good sort of rapport going. And then one day I was (laughs) spinning an ill-advised kind of analogy about police brutality. And I said, if the white person, I mean, the right person, I mean, the white person, like I had a tongue tied moment. Oh, no. And like <laughs> I felt my whole head and face and ears turn bright red. <laughs> and this this woman in the front row, she folded like she had been with me like all semester and she folded her arms. She leaned back in her chair and she shook her head at me just like Mm-mm. like that was <laughs> not OK. And she kept coming to class, but she stopped kind of like engaging in the course. And I get it. Like, I don't blame her for doing that. But I tell this anecdote to my students because I, you know, it's like, look, sometimes we just we're trying our best and we put our foot in our mouths. Mm -hmm. And if we just give each other the benefit of the doubt at the baseline, you know, maybe we can all get somewhere. So I try to do that because I want my students to feel comfortable speaking up, even if they don't know if they have the exact right words for things. Do you feel then that sort of issuing a trigger warning or or, or sort of explicitly setting that baseline is for you as well? Like, is not just for the students, but also sort of to give yourself some cushion to to err if that happens? Well, I don't know. I suppose so. You're like psychoanalyzing me. It's possible. Yeah. I mean, I think that I, I, I also want to recognize, partially it's because of the place that I teach. I teach at a, um, basically a public, it's a, it's a state institution. We're pretty open access, meaning if you graduated from high school in this state and have some money for tuition will accept you and we have a lot of students from the Appalachian area so there's a lot of kind of latent things in these conversations so I want to just put it out there like let's just try to talk about it let's give ourselves permission. Hmm. Hassan do you think trigger warnings are a good thing? I think they can be I think depends upon their their purpose and intent I I actually think that to a certain extent a, a lot of the argument uh, for them is really to sort of curb bad teachers, right? Like to sort of rein in professors behaving badly. What do you mean? Um, You know, professors who might say something that's not just like a slip of the tongue, but, you know, who will say things that are just racially insensitive. I mean, the the example, Joanna, that you gave, that you shared, I mean, I put myself in the position not of a professor, but as a student of color in the majority, uh, white classroom, white setting, and going into a classroom where you're like the only African-American, only person of color, one of only a few. I mean, you, you almost go in, speaking generally, in this sort of defensive posture. Mm-hmm. 
And so, you know, I can almost see the student, you know, crossing their arms and like, all right, I'm done. Thank you very much. and get my grade and move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's something I definitely have learned. I mean, I still think about it and it's been 10 years, right? I still think about, I still think about her face. Hmm. I think to myself, I don't want to, I don't want to make another student make that face ever. I don't want to betray somebody like that again. You know, I've read and Inside Higher Ed had sort of a listicle about why trigger warnings aren't good. And one of the things that was written was that trigger warnings could encourage students to file claims against faculty more often. You know, if you open that door, it will be easier for them to file complaints or claims. And the faculty that's most vulnerable is the faculty like y'all, who do talk about race um, gender issues, you know, social justice issues. What do you think about that? Well, you know, I, I already get, you know, students who will come out of the class and who will say, Professor Jeffries only talked about black people and he, you know, doesn't like white people. I'm like, well, you know, it's a course on African-American history, so we're going to talk about black people and, you know, whether or not I like white people is irrelevant. And, you know, what are you saying? Right. I mean, so in other words, as people who are talking about these uh, issues from a particular perspective, I mean, we're already going to get sort of, you know, criticism regardless. Um, that's, that's kind of baseless and without foundation. So I don't know if this is going to exacerbate that at all. Hmm. It, it's, it's not about curbing um, conversation on difficult subjects. We want to encourage that, right? But, you know, faculty members and students will say things that will come in from a place, unless you have the right environment, can just be hurtful taken the wrong way, um, insensitive, all of that. And then that can just destroy the environment in the classroom, right? It's just just not conducive to a constructive learning environment. Are you both tenured professors? I am not. Yeah, I am. So, you know, Joanna should probably just chill out now. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually a really um, pertinent question, right, is that um, the greatest fear of any academic pre-tenure is – doing something that puts your tenure bid right. at risk. Like what, what's, it, what's the kind of thing that would put your tenure bid at risk? Well, um, having... This conversation right now. And I <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I may want to vet the final edit of this before I send it out. <laughs> we don't do that. Yeah, no. But I mean, honestly, I think um, for me, the thing that I think would really push it over the edge is frankly, if I got into a situation where nobody liked me. And I know mm. that that shouldn't matter. Like the, the value of your work should be the thing that gets you tenure. And obviously it does. But here's the thing. If my work is kind of like, you know, pretty good, but not excellent and nobody likes me, I'm mm. not going to get tenure. Right. right. We, I think a lot of times um, in academia, we assume that it's a total meritocracy that it's like, well, if you get the journal articles out or you write the books or you get the big NIH grants, then that's the thing. And I think yes, but if nobody likes you, you are not going to go very far. No, that, that is that is absolutely true. So can I just ask you really quickly, what is the makeup of, you know, an African-American studies class at Ohio State University? The ones that you teach? So there will be... The yeah, Ohio so, State. The, <laughs> yeah, that the is very important. <laughs> so um, all my classes, if they're African-American theme, whether civil rights class or history of African-American, African-American history through film, you're talking about, you know, 60% white, huh. 70% white. Um, so overwhelmingly white. I mean, it's a reflection of the, the makeup of the college, of the university. Mm-hmm. So when you're lecturing in front of a group of students and you know you're going to talk about something that is very disturbing, does your warning change depending on the demographic makeup of your classroom? 
I think it absolutely would, and it should. Um, I had a class, I was teaching a U.S. history survey, 200 students, and I literally had five African-American students. Mm. And, and three out of the four would always, you know, all friends, they always sit together in the same corner. That day we're talking about slavery or something, whatever it was. And I told the class, I was like, look, we're going to talk about this. And I don't want everybody else in the class looking over here to these three black folk <laughs> over here for the answers. Just don't do it. And it was sort of my way of, one, acknowledging their presence in the class, but then also telling everyone, like, look, you know, here's the, here's the check on the conversation. We're not going to have that kind of conversation. Sure, anymore. sure. But it would also be my kind of way of sort of acknowledging to that let's just take the example one woman in a class full of men and we're about to talk about sexual assault kind of a, like a nod to her like hey you know mm-hmm. i understand that you are alone here or you might feel alone here i'm acknowledging that so it's kind of it's for the men but it's kind of more for her when i'm doing that i'm modeling to the men to the male students um this is what it feels like to be a woman in a room full of men when the conversation turns to sexual assault. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious then, I mean, Mm -hmm. in a class like that, you would want people to be sitting in that like uncomfortable space though, right? I mean, absolutely. No, absolutely. Like like, chafed. I mean, they should. Yes. Yes. That's the whole point. Right. I mean, so I'm like, listen, you know, this is not, this is not the Disney version of history, right? I want you to be uncomfortable, but there's a difference between sort of being uncomfortable because you're, you're not familiar with the ways to talk about a subject versus being uncomfortable because someone is saying something in a space, in an environment um, that you know has sort of ulterior meaning and motives behind it. And that's different. But the way that the conversation is framed, I mean, is that, you know, millennials are coddled and, you know, like entitled. Um, So like students today, like, are they making different demands? Like, I mean, are they making demands of their universities that you guys feel are like... Well, Uh, Hassan might have a different experience than I do, but I think it really depends on the context. You know, at my university, you know, more than, I think it's something like 48% of our students are first-generation college students. 26% or so, I think it is, of our students are Pell Grant eligible. Like, we are not an elite institution with, you know, children of the elite attending. And I don't, I mean, no offense to Ohio State University, the, sorry, the Ohio State University either. Um, but I kind of feel like there is a certain segment of the millennial generation, particularly the sort of very privileged um, who are going to your, your elite Ivy institutions who potentially might fit that stereotype a little better than the kinds of students that are usually in my classroom. Fact, just weigh in real quick. I mean, I think the class dimension to this is really important because, um, you know, at Ohio State, we have a large working class population. I mean, we also have we have a real range. But you know, if I walk into a class of 40 students and I say, who's working 30 hours you know, a week? more than half the class will raise their hand. Mm. And we still get a lot of first-generation students. So, so, you know, I I don't get a lot of pushback, you know, on things I might say, you know, partly because that's the nature of sort of the cultural environment in which these kids are coming out of. But when I was, you know, teaching at Duke, God forbid, Mm. right? Like, you know, every, every, you know, every every day somebody's saying something. I was like, I haven't given you a grade yet. Why are you complaining? And actually that bears out, if I can get a little dorky for a second, that bears out in the sociological literature about parenting styles, Hmm. um, professional class and upper middle class parents 
you know, see their teachers and professors as not necessarily as equals, but to be, not be afraid of them and not necessarily just give this them kind of hand over authority to them. Um, whereas working class kids are just raised in a very, very different kind of perspective mm-hmm. on that. So it seems like implicit in what you guys are saying, though, is this idea that the people who sort of request or push back are people who are maybe more coddled. I know that's not what you what you mean, but that's what it sort of sounds like. Oh, maybe it is what That's you mean. That's what I'm hearing. But that sounds like you're saying that kids who might have more sort of sense of like agency and, you know, we're talking about trigger warnings here. Like the trigger warnings are for people who are more coddled, which is the critique of trigger warnings, right? Well, you know, I think, I mean, Joanna explained it really well earlier, right? Like on the one hand, you know, if you're thinking about trigger warnings, I mean, there are there is real trauma, right? Mm-hmm. Like learning about American history, if you've been given this sort of, you know, sanitized version of George Washington and apple trees and all this other silliness, if you actually learn about what it really was, it can be traumatic, mm-hmm. but not PTSD traumatic, right? right. Like, like there's a difference there. And so I wonder to what extent, because I've never had a, a colleague of mine come in and say, oh, you know, I taught this class and a student said, oh, I just felt really bad about it. I wish you hadn't talked about this. And I was like, is this like a, a urban myth that somebody somewhere in some college and university is complaining about this? Now, what you do have complaints about, and this is not new, uh, are, you know, well, my teacher is talking about, you know, X, Y, and Z, and I don't like the way they're talking about it. That was really a political critique, right? It's sure. like a political criticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you hear it all the time in conservative media about a left-leaning, um, you know, higher ed faculty and stuff. So I think some of that bleeds over into this. But, I, you know, I really wonder to what extent any of those complaints are real. I, I just don't know. I wonder the same thing. I've had multiple, I've had complaints levied against me for what I think what we would call political reasons. I t- once taught a class on gender and uh, one of the evaluations that I got back said that I was uh, sexist against men. <laughs> and so <sighs> I thought, well, would a man get that comment in teaching the same material? Almost certainly not. Um, I also one time got a comment that I was uh, racist against white people. And I was like, well, you know, I've been white my whole life, so I don't, I don't really know how. Yeah. Anyway, but I'm like... Welcome to... Welcome. It's warm. The water's warm. <laughs> welcome yeah. to the club. <laughs> exactly. Well, why don't we codify this? Should there be a policy in place at every college that this is a thing that we do or don't do in the case of University of Chicago? We're just not going to do it? If, if in all my power and wisdom I had this authority... My law, my, my new regulation to, to faculty members would be don't say dumb stuff in class right? like <laughs> the, and, and go from there. Right. I mean, because you really can't rein it in. Um, but that's the objective. I think in the end, um, if you can just keep faculty members from getting in their own way and at least thinking about the things that they're saying and how they're presenting that material, that's the really the best that you can hope for. So who is the who is this like hypothetical dumb professor then? I mean, like, are there? Wait, colleagues? do you want do you do you want me to name names? <laughs> yes. I mean, let's do it. Let's do it. We blow up spots on the Switch podcast. We'd like some no. quotes too, please. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, look, I hear it from um, from students. Like, do you know what so and so just said? Right. And I mean, that's what I'm talking about. Now, academia is a really isolating, isolated sort of profession. Right. I mean, the reason why people become these top researchers is because they can't talk to anybody. Right. I mean, like you, just, you <laughs> operate in this sort of little bubble and lab and we rarely get any teaching um, preparation. Right. I never had one single class like on how to teach mm. when I was in graduate school. So in other words, there's a lot of people who have never been taught how to teach and they're bad. They're just bad teachers. And so we have to deal with that. Right. 
um, I was thinking about a panel that was on not too long ago, and it was a colleague who I didn't know from Ohio State, and he was in the literature and, you know, been teaching for 25, 35 years or whatever, you know, well-respected, um, white fella. And a question from the audience was, you know, how often do you think about issues related to race? And my co-panelist, the white fella, he was like, well, you know, I really don't think about it at all, you know, like, you know, un- unless I'm asked about it, but I really yeah. don't think about it at all. And my response was like, what, really? I was like, I think about it every day. It's yeah. like a regular topic of conversation with my wife, my kids, my cousin, you know, every, like every day. So I, th- I take away from that and I say, okay, well, what's the likelihood that he says something crazy, and I put crazy in quotes, he says something that will rub an African-American student, a student of color the wrong way versus me saying something in the classroom because I'm just thinking about it all the time. The same thing could be said uh, around any other subject. We're talking about issues related to gender uh, or sexuality. If I'm not thinking about it, then the likelihood uh, that I misspeak consciously or unconsciously, but just misspeak, uh, increases. I mean, that goes back to the whole maybe this should be codified because why would that man be, you know, okay, thinking codified about through how? Like, are you thinking about some sort of federal policy that comes down from the Department of Education? Yes, and, sure. So does that apply? <laughs> to, or else how does this I mean, how does this apply to that professor? I mean, it's still it's, an individual thing. Like, how do you get that professor right. to, you know, be conscious? Well, if you codified think, it and that, yeah. that professor like codifying doesn't make him. Uh, I'm thoughtful about this just because like the letter of the law doesn't mean he goes into it with like, the spirit of it, right? Well, I agree, but I'm I, and I'm playing devil's oh, advocate. Oh, sure, sure. I'm I mean, you know, but I just think if there's something, if there's a punishment or something, or you've been told trigger warning, you better do this or else. Or I don't know. I mean, I'm, yeah, I, I just I really think it requires a cultural shift, right? And and so <laughs> what is acceptable behavior for an academic, right? Look, at, at one point, uh, it was perfectly fine for male faculty members. Uh, to to hit on, you know, uh, female students, mm-hmm. right? To say sexual okay. things all the time in the classroom, in office hours, and you know, whatever. And so certainly there were laws that said, okay, you have to stop this. Right. But I think what would really happen is that you had a cultural shift that this is no longer acceptable, right? And so I think along these same lines, we need a cultural shift within higher education and education generally. Um, you're no longer going to be sitting in front of a room full of white men. You know, these classrooms are going to look different. And you it is your responsibility to think about how to approach these students to get the most out of them, regardless of, you know, their race, gender, sexual orientation, et cetera. Is the simple takeaway from this conversation trigger warnings? They're good for students. They're good for professors. Let's move on. I mean, I don't. I have, I, have, I have mixed feelings. I suppose I have a kind of almost a visceral reaction to any time I see a headline. Oh, trigger warnings, right? Because it's kind of like I feel like the sort of your average citizen sees that term and rolls their eyes. There they go, those liberal elite professors. Mm. Blah, you know. And obviously, I know that that's not what the conversation really is about. But um, I think that that's the the perception of what the conversation is about. Um, but I think that the idea of trigger warnings is a good one. And professors should at least be conscious of the underlying philosophy of trigger warnings. Thank you, Joanna. Thank you. Thank you, Hassan. Thanks so much. Joanna Hunter is a professor of sociology at Radford University. And Hassan Jeffries is a professor of history at The Ohio State University. Mm-hmm. 
All right, y'all. So that's our show for this week. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Code Switch, and we want to hear from you. Our email is codeswitch at npr.org. Subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found or streamed. Our producers are Rund Abdel Fattah, Walter Ray Watson, and thanks to the rest of the Code Switch team Karen Grigsby Bates, Kat Chow, Adrian Florido, Iman Smith, and Leah Danella. Our editors are Allison McAdam and Keith Woods. And we had original music this week from Ramteen Arab Louie. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Miraji. We're back next week. Be easy. Peace. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. Uh, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.